Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. Today here with me is Alison Gopnik. Alison is professor of psychology and affiliate professor of philosophy at UC Berkeley, where she has taught since 1988. She writes the Mind and Matter Science column for the Wall Street Journal, and she has written widely about cognitive science and psychology for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Science, The Times Literary Supplement, The New York Review of Books, New Scientist, Slate, among others. She has frequently appeared on TV and radio, including The Charlie Rose Show, The Colbert Report, and Radiolab. Her TED Talk has been watched over four million times. She has three sons and three grandchildren and lives in Berkeley, California with her husband, Alvy Ray Smith. In our previous episodes, we have discussed how AI and robots learn. Today, we're mixing it up and we're going to discuss how we humans learn. In fact, more specifically, how children learn. Allison has been pioneering our understanding of how children learn through play for many, many years. She's one of my favorite colleagues at Berkeley I'm very thankful for all our inspiring research conversations and her involvement in my students' thesis work. So glad I get to sit down with her for the podcast. Allison, welcome. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. Allison, it's so nice to sit down with you here, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. You are the first guest on our podcast who, I would say, is not very directly focused on engineering and is really studying humans. Can you maybe give a little bit of background? How, how did you even get into psychology, philosophy? Where did your interest come from? My first degree actually was in philosophy. So I was have been interested in philosophy for, you know, as long as I could, as long as I could remember, but I was also the oldest of six children. At the same time, I was someone who had spent a lot of time with children, looked at children a lot. And I was interested in some of these big questions that philosophers ask. The one that I think is the most central one is what I call the problem of knowledge. And that problem is we look around the world and we seem to have all this abstract, structured, hierarchical knowledge of the world around us, knowledge that lets us make inferences, make predictions, do things in the world. And yet all that reaches us from the world is a bunch of, of disturbances of air at our eardrums and photons hitting the back of our retinas. So how do we get from the photons and the air molecules to understanding the world in this very abstract kind of way? And that's a really central problem for philosophy. It's a central problem of epistemology. And I think it's the central problem for machine learning at the same time, for the central problem for AI. It's the central problem for things like vision science. And it's the central problem for cognitive development. So I got interested in that problem. I got interested in thinking about philosophy. And one of the things that really struck me when I was a philosophy major was that children were basically invisible from philosophy and had been for you know, millennia. In fact, I did a little analysis of the 1967 Encyclopedia of Philosophy at one point, and there were seven references to children. You could read the whole Encyclopedia of Philosophy and think that human beings reproduced by asexual cloning. And it seemed obvious to me that if you wanted to ask this question about how do we manage to learn as much as we do about, from, about the world from such little information, that the place to look was children, because they're the ones who are actually doing all that learning. They're the ones who are born with just these 
photons and air disturbances. And by the time they're four or five years old, even before they go to school, they understand about language, they understand about other people, they understand about the physical world. So what's happening in them that enables them to do this kind of learning? That's the big question. And maybe I'll just mention parenthetically, it's always seemed to me, it's interesting that there's a kind of a natural kind, academic natural kind that includes vision science, philosophy of science, epistemology, cognitive development, and machine learning, you wouldn't usually sort of put all those things together in the same in the same category. But all of those very different kinds of research programs are all trying to solve this big problem. And interestingly, that's different from, say, adult cognitive psychology or philosophy of mind or kind of good old-fashioned AI that's really about solving a different problem, which is once you have all that knowledge, how can you go out and do things in the world? But there's this problem that I think is more fundamental, which is how could you ever learn all that knowledge from what's going on around you? And children are the best learners we know. They're the ones who I think are the model for trying to solve that problem. That's so interesting because when I hear you talk, Alison, it's, um, it reminds me a lot of why I got into artificial intelligence and in that it's so amazing that we're able to understand so many things about the world as humans. But I feel like the difference is when, when I thought about it, I kind of maybe initially I thought, oh, yeah, it'd be great to study how humans learn. And then I was just like, oh, well, that seems way too hard. <laughs> um, let, let, let's maybe study how we can engineer something that can do something similar that that we have so much more control over. And then you actually <laughs> decided not, 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 not to let go of, of the fundamental first question, how, how do people learn? What, what's so special about it? And, and then you dove into children, which are, I would say, probably the hardest to communicate with because they're very young. And so research must be even harder than now with adults. So it's so intriguing. Now, when you started out in your research, it's a pretty abstract thing to just say, hey, I'm going to study how how children learn and how they know things about the world. What was your kind of path to, to even, you know, get some traction and what question even to ask? Yeah, well, I was also very lucky because when I started my my research, which is already now back in the back in the 80s, there just had been this kind of methodological revolution in studying children. So as you mentioned, Peter, you know, your first thought might be, well, okay, abstractly, it would be good to study children, but how could you ever figure out what's going on in children's minds? For millennia, people had thought there wasn't much going on in children's minds, that they were irrational and illogical and, you know, pre-causal, and you couldn't learn very much from the way children think because children weren't very good thinkers. And part of the reason for that is, you know, if you give a nine-month-old a five-part questionnaire to fill out, they're not going to sound very, uh, they're not going to do a very good job. And and even if you ask a three-year-old what they think, you'll get a beautiful stream of consciousness poem about ponies and birthdays, but you won't get anything that sounds very much like, you know, logic or reason or or induction. So what we had discovered starting in the 80s is that the solution to the problem was instead of looking at what children said, look at what they do. So do things like look at what they look at, what they reach for, and give them very specific, concrete kinds of problems, and then see how they solve those problems. And it turned out that you could learn a tremendous amount about what was going on in the minds of even very young babies by doing things like looking at what, giving them very specific kinds of problems, and then seeing things like which things did they prefer to look at or how did they reach for something? So 
the very first work that, that I did, so first I did a bunch of work about language, but then in the 80s, I started thinking about this very specific question, which is how do we ever understand what's going on in someone else's mind? And part of the reason for thinking of that is that's a classic philosophical question that philosophers call it the other minds problem. How do I know what's going on in anybody else's mind? And that seemed like a really important thing to understand and something that was really especially important for children to understand. So then the question became, could we think of very specific, concrete kinds of questions we could ask that could tell us what children thought about other people's minds and how they learned it? We had a very simple setup, which was that we would show the children a candy box that turned out to be full of pencils. So it's a real box. It looks like it's got candies on the front and it turns out to be full of pencils. And then what we could do is ask the children, children are very surprised by this. And then we could ask the children very simple questions like, what did you think was inside this when you first saw it? Or, you know, what will Peter think when he sees this box? And by looking at their answers to those questions, that tells us really deep things about, do they know that I could think one thing you could think another thing. Or another experiment that we did, we presented now even younger kids, 18-month-olds, with two bowls of food, one bowl of broccoli, one bowl of goldfish crackers. And all the kids liked the crackers more than the broccoli. But then they'd see a grown-up who showed that they did the opposite. The grown-up acted as if they really liked the broccoli and didn't like the crackers. And then, the, then we would say to the babies, can you give me some? And the question is, could the babies figure out that the grown-ups' preferences might be different? So anyway, those are just some of the examples of the very specific things that we could do to try to figure out uh, what was going on in babies' and young children's minds. So that's kind of where we started. And partly, I think, coming from philosophy and thinking about this big question, I and others at the time realized that what children were doing was a lot like what scientists are doing when they're making a theory about, say, human psychology. They were looking at the data, uh, looking at the evidence, and then trying to draw conclusions from the evidence in, in much the way that scientists were. Yeah, that's so amazing. When, when I think about the example you just gave, the, the crackers versus the broccoli, I mean, it's such a clever experiment to effectively get at what, we, in artificial intelligence and, and psychology and so forth, we call theory of mind, right? Maybe you can quickly discuss what is theory of mind, and, and then what was the thinking about theory of mind before your experiments for, for children, and, and how did it change the understanding? So, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, the cranky old lady here for a minute. We were the ones who called it theory of mind. So the idea, the word theory of mind actually was something, when we started doing this, a bunch of developmentalists, it's actually sort of a, a funny story. This is in 80, 1986. We put together a, an edited volume about this work that, uh, you know, again, it's always lots of different people kind of converged on doing this work. And we were trying to figure out about what a good title for it would be. And I said, well, let's call it developing theories of mind. That will be kind of a joke because it'll be we're developing the theories and they're developing the theories. And, you know, it'll be sort of memorable. And we had no idea that theory of mind would turn into the label for this entire that was sort of supposed to be a joke, and it turned into the label for this entire field, which is now something that gets done in neuroscience and in, in AI. And it, I think it's important, again, especially in something like robotics, it turns out that this is a really important problem for AI as well, especially for, for robots, right? It, robots absolutely crucially need to be able to figure out what's going on in the minds of the humans that they're interacting with, or even other robots to be able to 
to be able to do all the things that they can do. And something as basic as figuring out, well, maybe, you know, here's these two humans, one of them likes broccoli, one of them likes crackers. That's going to be a really essential deep thing for any AI system to do. So, so that was the, the impetus for our thinking about thinking about how kids could figure this out. And we did some experiments later on trying to show how kids were actually using data. So we would do things like give them a lot of information about preferences that people had or about beliefs that people had. And then we could see if we give them that kind of data, what kinds of inferences do they actually make? This is so interesting. I mean, we have run across in our conversations here, theory of mind, for example, in context of self-driving cars, the car needs to understand (laughs) what the other drivers are are trying to do. I mean, it's everywhere. Whenever you interact with, with people or other robots, you need to have that theory of mind. And I'm just trying to think back to, to when you started thinking about this and invented this whole field effectively. I mean, the simplest thing would have been to just ask a kid, um, hey, do you ever think about maybe what your mom is thinking about and, and what, what she likes and doesn't like? But that's not how you run the experiment. And so it's so interesting that you run the experiment in such a kind of Effectively hands-on with very physical items, things to eat involved. Yeah, exactly. So when we started doing the work, the kind of conventional wisdom, even from you know the great developmental psychologist uh, Jean Piaget, who was really sort of the founder of the field of cognitive development, he thought, and again, because if you ask children things like, how does your mind work? Or, or what do people think? What you get is sort of charming, but doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's you know, it'll be kind of odd, irrational sounding things. Now, sometimes once you know, you can kind of make more sense out of them, but but it takes it, it's hard to interpret what the children are saying. And the big discovery was that if we moved from just getting asking children things the way Piaget did, like, you know, what are thoughts like? If you do that, children will say things that are really interesting but strange, like, you know, well, thoughts are like big puffy clouds that are in my head, you know, say odd things. Um, But if we turned it into these very restricted, physical, real examples, then we would see something that we could see something that made much more sense. We started out doing this work about theory of mind, which turned into, you know, this, again, it was me, but other people as well, which has turned into this really big, important thing. It's funny that you say this, Peter, I'm thinking, suppose someone had told me when we were doing this in 1985, oh, this is going to be really important for cars. I would have said, no, cars, definitely not. Nothing to do with cars. No, car engineers, that's one That's one group that is not, as much as I love theory of mind, like cars aren't going to need a theory of mind, which would have shown you what I knew, right? So we started doing this. and then, But then there was this big question, which is the one that you were talking about, Peter, which is the one that appeals to engineers, which is, okay, great. So kids are doing this we could demonstrate they're really smart and logical and they're being like scientists, but how are they doing it? What's going on in their brains that could possibly allow them to do this? And, and, you know, the view of cognitive science, again, going back to, you know, even the sixties and seventies, the big idea of cognitive science is to think about the brain as being a computational system. So think about the brain as a computer that's instantiated in neurons. And although, you know, people argue about this, I still think that's by far the best big theory we have about how humans can do all the things that they do is that we've got these computational systems that work. So then the question is, well, okay, great. What kinds of computations are actually happening? And again, the question is like, what would be a good place to start to think about what sort of computations would actually let this happen? So 
it's kind of an interesting story about the different disciplines that were involved. So again, back in the 80s that we had this idea and development about, well, what was what ended up being called the theory theory, maybe it's like a scientific theory. So we went to the people in philosophy of science and said, okay, you're in philosophy of science. Tell us, how do scientists figure out about how the world works? And the philosophers of science said, we have no idea, right? Maybe maybe psychologists know. It's completely mysterious to us. We haven't been able to figure it out, which was a little frustrating. But within philosophy of science in the 1980s, I, this is, I remember this vividly. This is, a, I don't know if this is a good moral that you should go off drinking with the people that you're at conferences with. But in any case, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I think that's sort of the point of conferences. I was at the Society for Philosophy and Psychology and the philosopher of science, Clark Gleemore, was there. And I made my usual complaint about philosophers of science aren't telling us anything about computation. And he said, no, actually, I think there are these, there's this work we're doing on causal graphical models, causal base nets. And I think that's actually telling us something more specific and computational about how scientists could figure out the world. Because what we can do is take a bunch of data and extract the causal structure from that data computationally. And that's not all of what goes on in theory formation, but obviously it's a big part of what goes on in theory formation. It's a big part of what scientists do is do experiments, look at data, and figure out the causal structure of of the world. Um, And parallel, Clark and his colleagues in philosophy at CMU and Famously, Judea Pearl and his colleagues at at UCLA were doing work that was trying to show how you could do this formally and computationally. And my first thought about this is, well, let's figure out if that's what the kids are doing. And I have to say, Clark's first reaction was, that's crazy. Like, this is something that even, you know, it's really hard computers doing it. Scientists are not going to find little kids are going to be able to do it. And I thought, well, let's let's try. Let's see. Um, So that was the work that's about late 90s, where we started trying to see, could we systematically show that children were making the same kinds of inferences that you'd need to make to be able to do things like infer causal graphical models from patterns of correlation in statistics and data. And that's really been the big overarching research project. That was the, I think, I think research always comes in like 10 year chunks, or at least it does for me before you get bored and try something else. So that was like the next 10 years was, can we figure out a way of testing whether children are making causal inferences from statistics the same way that something like a causal base net would make inferences from statistics. So Alison, we haven't really talked in the past about base nets and causal inferences. Can you say a bit more about what, what they are? Yeah, sure. So the idea is that you could think about the problem. And, and again, this gets back to this problem of knowledge. People in AI talk about an inverse problem. So an inverse problem is there's some structure that's out there in the world Say for computer vision, it's, you know, there's three-dimensional objects and you're getting information about that world. So let's say you're getting a pattern on your retina and then you have to kind of go backwards and figure out what was it that actually led to that? What was it out there that led to that pattern of data? And you can do this for causal structures too. So if I have a, a causal structure, let's say I have a machine and it works because there's a switch and the switch makes one gear go and then that makes another gear go. That's something about the causal structure. Then, so think about it as being a a system of different variables interacting. I can say something about the values of one variable given the values of another variable. And I can use that, it turns out, to infer something about what the actual causal structure is that gave rise to that pattern of statistics. And again, that's what we do in science all the time. Anything we do in statistics is really saying, here's the conditional dependencies of these 
various variables and let's try and infer something about what the causal structure is. And in particular, what this does is let you put together statistics, here's the dependencies and probabilities, and then also the outcome of intervention. So if you've really got the causal structure right, then if you do something to one variable, the technical world word is wiggle, so you wiggle one variable, then it should have an effect on the other variable. And you can use Bayesian techniques among others, but definitely you, know, you can already see that the idea behind Bayesian inference is that you can, if you know something about how a structure leads to data, then you can search backwards and say, what's the likeliest? If I can say, if this is the structure, here's the likeliest data pattern, then I can go backwards and say, if this is the data pattern, I could infer something about the structure that generated that data pattern. So causal base nets were a really nice example of being able, I think one of the first ones of having a kind of model of the world, figuring out if this were the model were right, what would happen? What would the data look like statistically? And then being able to go backwards and say, okay, and here's the statistics and here's what happened when I intervened on one of the variables. Let me take all that data and use it to infer causal structure. So that's so interesting because you're alluding to kind of the, what at the time is the, in some sense, the most advanced statistical methods in AI in the late 90s, causal versions of BaseNets that are just being invented. And you're having this conversation effectively in a bar, having drinks, hearing that, you know, somebody's saying, hey, this is what, this is what we do mathematically. And it's, it's pretty complex. And, and you just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if, if children can effectively achieve the same results, even if they've never learned that math explicitly in, in school, obviously. And so how do you even get started? You want to somehow investigate if children can do this, but obviously you cannot, you know, try to teach them math and see if they understand it. You've got to have a different kind of experiment. Exactly. So, so you know, if you even ask grownups like, well, if, you know, X is conditionally dependent on Y with this probability, what's famously grownups are really hard at explicitly understanding things like probability, as anyone who's taken a statistics class will tell you. So we wanted to think, but, you know, in some ways, developmental psychology is easier than grown-up psychology because we don't do foolish things like ask people about probability because we know that's not going to work with a four-year-old. So what we did was we built this little machine called the Blicket Detector. It's a little box. It lights up when you put some things on it and not others. Kids love it. It's cool. You want to try and make it light up and play music. And then what we could do is we could show the children different kinds of patterns of activity on that machine. and ask them to make the machine go, ask them which one is obligate and which one isn't. And even with this very simple machine, you can do things like have a blicket that has, one blicket has a higher probability of activating the machine than another, even if it's stochastic. You can have a blicket that inhibits the machine, that keeps it from working. Well, you can have a situation where you need some logical structure, where you need, say, two blickets to make the machine go. And then we had other machines, like the one I mentioned, the gear toy, where you flip a switch, there's two gears on top, that very simple system, right? It could be that you have a causal chain where the switch makes one go, which makes the other go, or you could have a causal chain in the other direction, or you could have a common cause where you flip the switch and it makes both of them go. Even these very simple mechanical systems have lots of potential for different kinds of causal structure. And what we could do is we could control what kind of data the children were getting. And then we could see if the children were making the right inferences, the kinds of inferences they would have made if they had this kind of Bayesian capacity, this Bayesian model of the world. And what we found, I must say, greatly to our surprise, 
over and over again, like we kept asking, we would sit in the lab and say, okay, the kids aren't going to be able to do this, right? And sure enough, it would turn out that the, the kids were able to do it. And in the work that we've been doing this last 10 years, in many respects, the kids are better at doing this than grownups are because grownups get seduced by their prior knowledge. Grownups tend to just pay attention to what they already think, whereas the kids are, are really these learning machines designed to do exactly this, designed exactly to take data and try and figure out the structure of the world based on that data. So Allison, I'm curious, when the kids are playing with the Blicket machine, uh, trying to figure out whether something is a Blicket or not, depending on you know whether an interaction leads to music or, or something lighting up or not, what kind of age does it start becoming possible for, for them to infer these causal relationships? Well, the youngest we've got is about 15 months. So by the time the kids are two, they're definitely, they definitely can do this. And there's some experiments. My ex-student, Laura Schultz at MIT, has done some experiments with 15-month-olds doing it. We don't know for sure whether infants, like nine, eight or nine-month-olds, can do it. But 15-month-olds 15, 15 for developmental psychologists, you say, oh, well, yeah, but that's older than nine month olds. But for most people, like 15 months is just starting to walk and talk. These are pretty little babies. And by the time you're talking about two and three-year-olds, uh, three and four-year-olds are kind of the, the standard group that we, we do these experiments with. So these are really little kids. Kids who are just starting to just starting to walk and talk and make their way around the world. Now, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but in my mind, there's a fundamental difference between inferring deterministic causal relationships and probabilistic causal relationships, where deterministic seems, at least to me, a lot easier to wrap my head around. Is there a difference with the children where the probabilistic ones are also harder for them and they take a, an older age to get to, or, or is it just as easy for them to do the probabilistic ones? Well, it's interesting. So one of the experiments we did, one of the youngest groups we did, we did an experiment with my colleague uh, Andy Meltzoff with 24-month-olds. So that's very little, just not even quite two. And what we did was we took our Blicket detector. We have two Blickets, two blocks. There's a red one. You put the red one on and it goes four out of six times. So you put it on six times and four times the machine lights up. Then you put the blue one on and it also makes the machine light up four times, but now you do it eight times and there's four times where it doesn't make it light up. So even though the kids have actually seen the same thing, each time they've seen four positive examples, if you're trying to work out the probabilities, then that first red block is more likely to make the machine go than the blue block. Then we just give the kids the red and blue blocks and say, can you make it go? And 24 month olds are choosing the block that has the higher probability of making the machine go, even though the actual numbers that they've seen are the same in both of those, in both of those cases. And there's other work, even with infants by people like Jenny Safran, that show that even infants are sort of a remarkable thing that also came out in the 90s is that uh, statistics kits are actually amazingly good at making these kinds of statistical inferences. Now there's later work that I think is really interesting that, again, uh, that Laura Schultz and, and Jessica Somerville did, which showed that at least with four or five-year-olds, when they make these inferences, they also seem to assume, so we've been having this big debate about, do they think that causal relations are intrinsically deterministic, or do they think that they could also be probabilistic? And in a physical system, if they see that something works like four out of eight times, they think that there's something else that's keeping it from working those other four times. So they infer that there's some unobserved cause that's responsible for the 
probability. Now, a big debate that we've had, and we don't yet have a good solution to this is, my suspicion is that if you're making inferences about people, you might think people are just intrinsically indeterministic, intrinsically probabilistic. It's not like there's something else going on that's responsible. They just, that's just what they're like. That's, they have free will, they have choice, they can decide to do something or not. And there's a little bit of evidence that kids might think that. And again, this is very relevant for AI or for robotics. So if you have a robot trying to determine, is this an agent that I'm dealing with, or is this just a physical system? Something like whether it's deterministic or not might be a really important cue. Alison, what I'm really curious about is when the kids see the red lights up, makes the box light up four out of six, the blue four out of eight. Effectively, they like red is more likely. They somehow do that math and, and they go for red. Have you done the experiment where you then let them put red on the box? And what if the box doesn't light up? Are they going to change their mind and be like, actually, maybe I was wrong? Or are they going to be like, no, I just need to try a second time because it's just... You know, it, it doesn't always go, but it goes most often. So I should just put it on a few times in a row and then it'll go on. Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. And we haven't quite done that experiment, but we have done some experiments about belief revision. So one of the big interesting questions and, and a real challenge for AI is how can you how can you change your belief about something when you get new evidence? And we've done some experiments again with three and four-year-olds that show that they're rationally revising their beliefs. So for example, if you show them that the object goes one out of four times, and then you just give them one counterexample, right? So they've got evidence that they've got evidence that it goes four times and then they have one counterexample that it's working the other way, then they won't revise their belief. But if you show them that it works one time and then they see four examples of it not working, they will revise their beliefs. So they seem to be good Bayesians where they're counting up the weight of the evidence and they'll revise the belief if, in fact, the weight of the evidence now outweighs the prior evidence that they have, but not if it's the other way around. So even when they're revising, they seem to be sort of counting up how many examples of this do I need before I should think that the new data is actually overwhelming the data that I've already got. Wow, that's amazing. So they're actually tracking at least approximately, maybe even exactly, who knows, the, the probabilities involved in the specific phenomenon that they're looking at. Exactly. There's some other work about this as well, where we do the problem that we have now is so in some ways it's amazing that the kids are doing, I mean, it is amazing that the kids are doing all this. Now our challenge and part of the reason why I've been collaborating with, with people at Bear is because then the question becomes, well, we know how they're doing it at sort of the abstract computational level. We know that, you know, they're normatively making, doing the right things they should, but how can you actually do that in real life? Right? I mean, how can you do that with your limited, the limited computational capacities that you have? What kinds of algorithms could be using that would solve this problem? And that's especially challenging for this kind of Bayesian perspective because the Bayesian perspective is I have some data, I have a bunch of different hypotheses that have different probabilities, and I'm going to use the data to figure out which one is most likely. But of course, if that's at all complicated, if the possibilities are, you know, even just for some little thing like a Blicket machine, the possibilities get really complicated really quickly. And somehow the kids are searching through the space and coming up with the right answer, you know, with in a minute with two-year-olds, how on earth they can do that when, you know, our most powerful computers have trouble solving those kinds of problems. That, that's what I think the, the real crucial question is right now. So effectively, your experiments have shown kids are very capable, but not why yeah. <laughs> or how, how. Th those capabilities come about. 
which is of course what what AI likes likes to study. And I'm very curious in, in that regard. I mean, as you know very well, AI was you know excited as a community excited about neural nets for a while, long time ago, multiple times, long time ago. But then they kind of disappeared, even though they're probably the closest thing we have in terms of engineering AI systems to what we know about the brain, even though, you know, of course, we don't know enough about the brain to really match it up. But then in around 2012, with the ImageNet breakthrough, Jeff Hinton's group, neural nets came back to the forefront of AI and still are today. I mean, more than ever, the methodology people are, are, are going for and are getting the best results with. And I'm curious from your perspective, as you are studying children or humans in general, but especially children, where you know that there are neural nets involved. What was that for you when you saw a, the AI community transition back to neural nets? Did, did that change maybe what you were thinking about and, and collaborations you were thinking of and so forth? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, you know, to go back to thinking about philosophy, right? So going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, they were trying to solve this problem of knowledge, right? And the solutions that people have come up with over the years tend to sort of ping pong back and forth between these two options. So one option, which is sort of the innateist, this is Plato's option, Descartes, Chomsky's, good old fashioned AIs, is look, the only way you're gonna solve this problem is if you build in the structure to begin with. This is the apocryphal perhaps AI person saying, okay, we'll take the summer, we'll write down everything that anybody knows and then we'll put it into the computer. So one option is, all right, let's just build everything in to begin with. That turns out to be really hard to do because of all the things that we know. The other option, going back to Aristotle and Hume and Mill and the associationists, and then connectionists in their first neural networks in their first connectionist iteration in the, in the 80s is, look, it just looks as if there's all this abstract structure. We can actually do everything that we want without having to think about abstract structure. If we just have enough data, just give us enough data and enough statistics in the data, and we're going to be able to do all the things that we think that we need abstract hierarchical structure to do. And, and in development, that's gone back and forth. So connectionism, for instance, when it first appeared in the 80s, there was a lot of excitement in development about, is this the kind of thing that could help solve the uh, developmental problem? And in a way, you know, I think the moment that we're at now with AI is the moment of realizing, well, there's a lot that those systems can do, but they're coming up against barriers. They're coming up against problems. And the problems are exactly the problems that we have in development. So going back to Jean Piaget, I think anybody who's actually studied children, when they see these two options, think, you know, that does neither of those sounds like what children are doing, because children really are learning. They're not just, you know, expressing some innate core knowledge or something. But they also seem to, from the time they're very little, they seem to be able to make these really abstract kinds of inferences. So how could both those things be going on? And the idea of constructivism is what people call it in developmental psychology, going back to Piaget, is somehow what's happening is that you're using the structure you already have to decide how you're going to take in information from the world. Then you use that information to revise and change the structure you already have and you know, rinse and repeat and do it over and over again. Now, the problem is how do you do that computationally, right? I mean, it's not easy, but the great you know, revival of things like deep learning has been to show that you could, you really could instantiate this if you have big, powerful computers and big, giant data sets. But I think exactly some of the problems, like adversarial examples, where it turns out that just looking at statistics 
doesn't get you the right kinds of generalizations are suggesting that we're kind of coming up against some of the limits of what you can do just by looking at statistics and just by abstracting statistics. And I think the kids are a really nice example of how you might combine looking at statistics, looking at probability, looking at the kind of data that deep learning uses and ending up with something like, oh, okay, well, you know, you thought that there were Smarties in the box because you have a belief about Smarties and you saw this and you, you know, it's an inference that you're making at a very high level, not something that you could make just by taking all of the specific examples of all the things that you had experienced in the past and trying to, uh, trying to generalize from them. I think the big challenge now is that things like deep learning have turned out to be really good computationally in the sense that they scale up really well, which I, I think is not something the neural net people would have anticipated, that they would scale up as well as they, they do with more knowledge and more, uh, and more data. And frankly, our Bayesian stuff does not scale up very well. We have these horrible search problems that we have to face. So now the question is, could we get some kind of hybrid system that has the structure the inference, the generalization capacity of, say, a causal graphical network, and also has the computational efficiency of something like a deep learning piece. And again, I think the children can give us some important cues about how to solve that. So one piece, Peter, which is very relevant to the work that you've done, is, again, this goes back to um, when we first started doing this causal work, when we first started doing using the Blicket detector, all the computational work was kind of passive. So it was always saying, well, what we'll do is we'll give a, an algorithm a whole bunch of data about conditional dependencies, and then we'll let it work out the causal structure from that data. And I remember saying, you know, the problem with our Blicket detector is how do we keep the kids from wanting to just put the blocks on the detector all the time. So we actually had to make sure that we, you know, we had to make sure the detector was on our side of the table because otherwise, as soon as you ask the children how it worked, what they would do is pick up the blocks and start putting them on to try and do experiments and find out. And I think one of the things about the reinforcement learning, which has kind of like been the latest iteration beyond just the deep learning, is that in reinforcement learning, what you're doing is actively trying to get information. It isn't just that you're passively soaking up information, you can actively do things to try and figure out what's going on in the world. And I think that's going to be that kind of active, intrinsically motivated learning is going to be a big part of what will solve the problems. And that's something where we can really learn a lot from children. And that's something that we're doing a lot in our labs and in development in general. So that's so interesting. I mean, active learning is so different from the, the most of the learning that's put into applications today, right? If you look at any deep learning application used today, typically Massive data set collected, then training, and then deployment, and some monitoring and updates, of course. But active learning, the system actually goes collect the data, which is such a different framing. I want to get back to that. But what you said earlier, I'm really curious, Allison. You said you mentioned adversarial examples, which are images where a neural net has been trained on many examples of, let's say, elephants and giraffes and dogs and so forth, and it understands them very well of the types that are in your data set, but then you can actually perturb an image by just a few pixels. And all of a sudden, it confuses a giraffe with an elephant. And no human would ever be confused. That's why they're so intriguing. I've been around for many years now in deep learning and still are puzzling all of us. It's one of those things where neural nets are clearly 
not understood. Why is this happening? And so I'm really curious, what are your thoughts? And have you run, you know, experience with children maybe to see, you know, what kind of adversarial examples they're susceptible to? Well, it's interesting because it's one of those things that came out of, you know, parallel work in the 80s. And one of the reasons why we ended up with arguing for the theory theory was discovering that, you know, one of the ideas was, well, maybe children are very much limited to the here and now. And that was an idea that was around from, from Piaget and from others was that children were just paying attention to the sort of superficial perceptual features of things. They weren't pulling out more abstract features. And one of the things that we discovered was that even for very little children, you could give them two things that looked superficially very similar, but that, for instance, behaved causally in a different way, and they would categorize them differently based on these much more abstract features that they had. In fact, one of the first experiments we did with our Blicka detector was showing children, for instance, here's one red square block that makes it go. Here's another identical, perceptually identical red square block that doesn't make it go. Tell me which one is a Blicket. And even though they're perceptually identical, even two-year-olds will tell you the one that made it go is a Blicket and the one that didn't make it go is not a Blicket. So they're already going beyond just the perceptual characteristics of objects to try to make these more abstract inferences about how they work. And I think part of what the the deep learning has shown is there's a lot you can do just with perceptual generalizations, just by paying attention to superficial features of things. But what the kids are telling you is, you know, even two-year-olds are already going way beyond that. And that's part of the reason why they can generalize as well as they can, they can. And I think what the adversarial example suggests is that what the deep learning systems are doing is something really different, which is paying tremendous attention to these superficial perceptual features of the world around you. And it turns out that you can actually do a lot just with those superficial perceptual features, but you can't do the kinds of generalization and learning that we can do even as as two-year-old children. I have a recommendation for everyone. If you haven't already seen The Mitchells versus The Machines, it's a great movie that tells you a lot about both human beings and AIs and parents and children. It's it's a, a great animated movie. And there's a wonderful kind of joke, which is the way that they defeat the evil robots is that they put a, a dog, this kind of very ugly family dog that it kind of looks like a dog, but kind of looks like a pig and kind of looks like a loaf of bread. And the robots look at it and they can't figure out what it is. You know, they sort of all say, dog, pig, loaf of bread does not compute. And they fall apart and they can't do anything anymore. And of course, all the family knows, yeah, this is a funny looking dog, but it's definitely a dog. I'm not going to confuse it with anything else. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm going to have to go watch that movie now. It's, uh, <laughs> it sounds, sounds like I got something to do this weekend. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> I also saw that in, in some of the work you do, you, you talked about this notion that the data we feed into our neural nets today is very different from the data children perceive. There is this, this data collected where a child has a camera on their on their forehead, effectively, right? To get a sense for what is it visually that children see and how different is it from what we feed into our neural nets today? What are your thoughts on that experiment? And, and you know, what should we learn from it? Yeah, I think that's really, it's really fascinating about you know, one of the things that we have typically said about is a difference between children and machine learning is that, you know, we give the children in our Blicket detector experiments, you know, we give them two examples and they can figure it out. And of course, in, in deep learning, you need hundreds of thousands, millions of examples before you can make the kinds of discrimination. So one question is the way we often 
something people often say is, well, look, humans don't need very much data compared to computers. But I think a better way of putting it is that data they get is really, really different. So if you're looking at something like these GoPros, what happens is that children are getting data from a much smaller group of objects, you know, just the things that are around them in the nursery. But they're, for instance, getting data from all the different angles that you could see something in right? So they're getting data as they move around the world and see things in different ways from different angles. They're getting data as they pick things up and manipulate them. So they're getting a lot of this kind of active inference, whether it's active inference in terms of reaching and picking things up, or even just active inference in terms of moving your head around and seeing things from different perspectives. And of course, they're seeing video, right? I mean, they're seeing things that are moving around them. And we know from the developmental literature that movement's a really, really important cue for children's understanding of objects. And one of the things that I think we're talking about doing at Berkeley now, um, and I think we will do, is we've got some of these data sets and then see what happens if you try different algorithms with the data sets that really are the data sets that we learn from. Um, how does that lead to different kinds of inferences? And if you think about something just as simple as figuring out a three-dimensional object from a two-dimensional picture, all those ImageNet examples, they're all you know two-dimensional things that you see on the internet that have already been curated by human beings because human beings are deciding, you know, this is the cute picture of the cat that I want to put out on the internet. They're really different from, say, a video, uh, the, the view you get of your cat as it's running around the room and you're running around after it. And I think it's a really interesting question. It seems quite plausible that for something like inferring 3D structure from 2D, which is obviously a really important thing, even you know for a self-driving car, that's something we're having lots of different views of the same object and knowing that you're moving around that object might be a much better way of inferring something new about what its three-dimensional structure is than you could get from just seeing a bunch of 2D snapshots of that object or of objects that were like it. I think that's really becoming so so interesting these days because we're really transitioning from AIs that are used just in the internet world, all digital, where indeed that you train the AI on curated data people put on the internet, and then you use it for curated data people put on the internet. And so train distribution, test distribution, there, there's a lot of similarity. But then you go to physical world, if, if you want to put a robot in a home, you want to put a robot in a factory, you want to have a self-driving car, a drone, the kind of data they see is, is just so different from anything that's in these curated data sets, which is so, so interesting. One thing I'm really curious about, Alison, what your thoughts are, maybe you already know, or maybe you'll have to have to speculate, but when you think about the data that children have, let's say we put a GoPro on a baby and that's been done, of, of course, and, and we use that data set. Do you think that will be enough? Or is the fact that the child is also deciding where to look, deciding to reach for things, is that maybe just as important or even more important? Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a little bit of evidence for this that, um, for example, there's really lovely work, quite old work now, showing that when um, kids start to crawl, um, a whole lot of their perception of the world seems to change. So the crawling is, a, that's a nice example where, you know, before you're crawling, if you're like a six month old baby, you and see, you see the things that are going on around you, you're getting picked up, you're getting carried around, but you're not controlling very much about how you move. And one of the reasons why it drives parents crazy when babies start to crawl is now the baby can decide where they want to go and what they want to uh, explore um, without the parents being the ones who are in charge of that. And there's some evidence from quite a while back that uh, 
that being able to decide where you're going, having that kind of control, it makes a big difference to the way that you understand what's going on around you in the world. And I think that's, uh, again, a really interesting frontier for something like robotics about how do you take the information from, I want to go over there, or I'm, I decided to move this object this way and combine that with, and now look, now this object looks different from this angle than it did from that angle. And if we're going to have you know, robots who have even the same kind of capacities as a one-year-old or a two-year-old, that's the kind of thing you're going to have to do is figure out how do you put together information about what I'm trying to do or what I'm choosing to do and relate that to what I see as a result of doing that. So the other thing that really struck me about what you um, just explained is this notion that it seems children can be in like one environment effectively and learn things that generalize other places. And, and this is very contrary to how we do pretty much all of our deep learning today is get as much data from as diverse a, a range of locations and situations as possible. That's the way to train it. That That's what we can make work best. But you're saying actually children somehow can learn, maybe even if they spend their entire, you know, first two years or whatever in, in the same house, just a single house, they would learn things that allow them to understand the world beyond that house really well. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think one of the biggest, most interesting challenges, this is related to this kind of search problem, is that children have this kind of characteristic, and again, this is some of the more recent work we're doing, where children in many ways are more creative about considering different hypotheses than adults are. And the puzzle is, how do you get from the things that you know to these often kind of crazy and wacky, but really interesting and cool things that kids think of? So my favorite recent example of this is, is actually from uh, Sherry's uh, child, Sherry's a postdoc in Ayosha Versus lab. And she has this wonderful story about taking her, her son out to the campus at Berkeley. And, and Berkeley has this famous campanile, you know, a big clock tower. And he looked up at the tower and he said, there's a clock way up high there. And of course, if you think about it, if you're a kid who's been in, you know, your house for two years, you probably have never, you undoubtedly have never seen a clock that was, you know, a uh, hundred feet up in the air. And he said, that clock is up in the air. And then he said, maybe they put it there so the students and the children won't break it. Which is a great theory. About, I love this. I love the idea of, you know, the professors all said, oh, we have this beautiful clock, but those students will always, you know, they always are causing trouble. We'll put it up high where they, they won't break it. Now, that's obviously a cute story because one thing that he does know from his experience in the house is when you want to keep things from the children, you put them up on a high shelf where they, <laughs> they won't break it. But I mean, I think that's a a lovely example where no one's ever said this to him. He's never had any specific data about it. This is the first time he's ever seen the Campanile. The Campanile is really out of distribution, right? And yet, and he comes up with this idea, this hypothesis, which is obviously not right, but is kind of in the ballpark, right? Um, and, and how we could have a system that is creative enough to come up with something that's really novel not in the distribution of what it's seen, but is also not just completely random. I think that's going to be the really interesting challenge now for, for AI and understanding, and for us as cognitive scientists, understanding how it is that, that kids can do this. And this is, you know, kids do this even more than adults. Kids are really, really good at coming up with unlikely, initially unlikely hypotheses. 
We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, as kids are learning and then generalizing like that, I'm curious about things like, you know, what are your thoughts on things like driving, right? Obviously, the way humans learn to drive is very different from the way AIs learn to drive today. They're usually 16 or older before they learn to drive. And the process is so different. What are some, some things you think maybe we, we could learn from when we build AI systems from how humans learn to drive that might give us more reliable systems than we have today? Well, I think again, there's two, you know, there's two things that I think we're right now that we're learning from children that are really relevant to trying to figure out um, how AIs could learn. So one of them is this kind of active learning, this kind of active exploration. Now, probably one of the reasons why we don't let kids drive until they're 16 is that's maybe a problematic. Uh, that might be problematic for in various ways if you're thinking about driving. But I think when people do learn how to drive, that's one of the things that happens is they try out various kinds of options and possibilities. But the other thing that's really important about how children learn is that they're in a social context. So a lot of how we learn, especially as adults, is learning from the culture or learning from other people. And we use things like imitation and language to take what other people are doing and then use it to learn ourselves. So in the case of driving, for example, you know, there's driving manuals, but probably the most important thing is that people are imitating what other people around them are doing. So, you know, you imitate your driving instructor. Um, and that's true for a lot of adult skills. And one set of work that we've done has shown that even little kids, even two and three-year-olds, are very tuned to imitation, very tuned to seeing what the actions of other people are. I mean, literally from the time they're born, there's studies that show that babies are imitating other people from the moment they're born, but they don't just imitate in a mindless way. What they seem to do is, this is connected to the theory of mind work that I was mentioning. Even three and four-year-olds are really good at figuring out what is it that this person is trying to do and how could I do something that's like that? And I think that's exactly what we do when say we're learning to drive. We're not just you know, making exactly the same movements as the driver is making, we're trying to say, oh, okay, he was, you know, trying to turn when you're trying to go around a corner, this is the way you do it. This is the thing you do. And that I think is the kind of, that's the way that humans learn skills. And there's an interesting question about, could we, and as you know, you know, people like um, Anka Dragan, your colleague at Berkeley are trying to see, could we get robots who could learn that way, trying to figure out what is it that the person is trying to do, not just, not just imitating the superficial features of, of, uh, of how they move, for example. Now, I like this notion that you say children from very early on are, well, I don't know if they're hardwired, but they are early on, they're already imitating and figuring out how to imitate. As we try to build AI systems, a lot of the, the things we need to figure out is, as you alluded earlier, what, what is hardwired, what is not hardwired? And it seems like not too many specific things are hardwired. But certain maybe building blocks are maybe very close to hardwired. You've mentioned motion being something that babies latch onto very quickly. You mentioned um, imitation. Like, is there some kind of maybe kind of set of things that you believe are are hardwired, and that if we can somehow get those hardwired the right way, we can 
you know, see, see the same kind of learning in our AI systems that we see in, in children? Well, I think, you know, one of the ideas that came all the way back to thinking about the theory theory is that there's two different ways you could think about things being hardwired. One way is that they're really constraints on what the final system is going to look like. I mean, even if you're thinking about this from a sort of uh, engineering perspective, right? So one thing you can say is, all right, there's these constraints. We're only going to come up with things that fit these constraints. And a lot of the early work on, you know, people like Chomsky's account of language, that was the idea that you could solve this search problem, this problem about how do we take a small amount of data and make draw conclusions by really, really limiting the search by saying we're, we're going to have some strong constraints on the kind of searching that we do. And that's one way that things could be hardwired. But another way that things could be hardwired, what I, I've called sort of a starting state theory is you could start out with some assumptions about how the world about around you works, but those assumptions are always going to be revisable. So you could, you know, one way that people have thought about this from a Bayesian perspective is think about it as that you have a a peaked prior. You already have a prior when you're born that says these things are more likely than other things. But the nice thing about doing that from a Bayesian perspective is if you get enough data, this gets back to what we were saying before about some of these experiments, you could say, oh, I was wrong. The world doesn't work this way. It works this other way. I'm going to revise my original assumption. But starting out with those original assumptions and then revising them might be a much more efficient way of learning than starting out with a complete blank slate and trying to actually build the assumptions from, uh, from the data. So somehow, and again, you know, the trouble is trying to figure out how to do this mathematically and computationally, somehow what the kids actually seem to do is start out with one rather simple theory about say how people work or how um, objects work. And then they can really revise and, and that helps them. I, I think it's very relevant if you're thinking about something like active inference, you know, you need to kind of have an idea of what you're looking for to have experiments be the right experiments, right? It's, it, again, think about the case of science. Like you don't just go out on a fishing expedition and you couldn't just get all the data that you could possibly have. Uh, you want to decide what kind of data you want based on what you already think is true about the world. But then the data could itself shape and revise and change what you think is true about the world. And how that process works, I think we don't have a very good idea, but something like that seems to be true. So building in some kind of, starting assumptions about how the world works, but then being able to change those when you get different kinds of data, that seems to be sort of the recipe for uh, the kids. Uh, here's an example that I like. We actually did experiments about this. Think about a remote control, right? So any, you know, if you think about evolution building something in for uh, to us in the Pleistocene, one assumption you'd make is for one thing to affect another thing, it has to be physically in contact. And there's some evidence that even infants, babies already sort of thinking that, you know, kind of if one ball hits another, then it will make the other go. But kids have no trouble understanding a remote control. They love remote controls. <laughs> they love, and in fact, I think it's interesting that they love remote controls. So they seem to both get, there's something weird about this, right? that's making it really, really interesting. It's not something that I already understand, but I can play with it enough. I try out different things. I click the buttons in different ways to figure out how it works. And I think that's, we've done some experiments that show that if you take our blicket detector, for example, and you just have a blicket detector where you just wave it on top of the machine without its touching, the kids are surprised. They start out thinking, no, it has to touch the machine. But they very quickly learn and experiment to figure out how 
how this new relationship works. And, and again, that seems to be the secret. Now, how you actually build in that ability to, you know, start out making some assumptions about things, but then be able to revise and change them when you get more data, that's really challenging from a, an AI perspective. Talk about what children like, or even love. A lot of young children love the box that contains their <laughs> present more, more than the actual present. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Well, my assumption is that and this is where the the new work that I've been doing in the past 10 years or so comes in. So, you know, one reason why you might want to look at children is just they don't know as much as adults. They're all of us when we're little, you know, they're going to tell us what the foundational ideas are. But I think it's actually more than that. I think children actually, children in particular, are really well designed by evolution to do this kind of learning. And a lot of the things that look like bugs from the perspective of adult inference and functioning and being doing well in the world are actually features from the perspective of learning. So my slogan is that childhood is actually evolution's way of doing simulated annealing and solving explore exploit problems. So one of the things that we also know that's a really deep problem in AI is this explore exploit tension. So how can you get a system and you know you can prove that you can't get a system that both is optimally searching through the space of possibilities and also optimally acting on the possibility that's the right one. Those two things are really in tension with one another. And the question is how do you solve that? And a lot of times in, in AI systems, one way to solve it is to really alternate between exploring or, and exploiting. And often it's start out exploring or start out with a really high temperature search, noisy search of lots of possibilities, and then narrow in to actually exploit. So when you're actually making, you know, when your car is making the decision about which way it's going to turn, you don't want it to be doing the training of wait a minute, maybe I could try this, or maybe I could try that, or how about if I do this other thing, right? You want it to just make the decision based on what it already knows. But it turns out that in order to do that, you have to give it a period when it's actually able to learn. And what I've argued is a lot of the things that are characteristic about children, the fact that they love to play, the fact that they'll spend all their time playing with the box, the fact that they're random, they say a lot of weird things, they're kind of noisy, both, you know, metaphorically and actually, the fact that they're terrible at exploit, you know, they're terrible at actually making things happen and actually doing things, um, that those might actually be features from the perspective of this kind of explore exploit um, story. And one of the things that we know if from an evolutionary perspective is that the smarter the adult animals are, the longer a period of childhood they have. And childhood is is quite puzzling from an evolutionary perspective because it's, you know, you're not producing anything, you're not actually making anything happen, why would this long period of childhood be be really uh, important for having a smart, flexible adult? Part of it might be just that you have more time to learn, but I think there's something deeper than that about what it means to have a kind of learning, experimental, playful intelligence versus um, an active, resource-based, goal-directed intelligence. And, and as you know, reinforcement learning has really nice, vivid examples where trying to get reward and trying to explore are really in tension with one another. And it's hard to get systems that can do both. So I'm really curious when you say evolutionarily, there's evidence that longer childhood can lead to higher levels of intelligence. Is that something that we're, I mean, is it, has there been studies where maybe in some cultures, children kind of get a longer 
childhood period or is are you looking across species curious yeah it's the the evolutionary work is looking across species so if you compare even among and in fact the first place that people noticed this was not even among mammals it was in birds so if you compare say a crow or a, especially like these new caledonian crows but crows in general are really smart anyone who's hung out with birds knows crows and ravens are, are really smart and chickens and turkeys are really dumb, um, really, or at least not very flexible and not very good at learning. And it turns out that the crows are fledglings for as long as two years, which is a really long time, whereas the chickens are mature within a couple of weeks. And you just see this all over. You see it among mammals, you see it among insects. The longer the period of immaturity, the more, the high, bit larger brain the animal has and the more they rely on learning. So there's something about those two things that seems to go together. And I think even in humans, I just did a, a column for the Wall Street Journal about a really, you know, very pragmatically important, but also sort of intellectually fascinating fact, which is that when you look at the effects of preschool, so this is a nice randomized control trial kind of setup where there were they instituted a preschool program in Boston in, in 1997, and they had a lottery to decide which kids would get into the program because they had too many applicants. So you had a nice kind of randomized control trial of which kids got to preschool and which kids didn't. And what they found was that if you looked at things like just how well they did on standardized tests three years later, it just, the effects seemed to fade out. And that's kind of been some of the conventional wisdom about preschool. But if you looked at whether or not they took the SATs or whether they went to college or whether they ended up in juvenile hall, then you saw effects of the preschool. So it was what the preschool, what that early period of nurturance and play seemed to do wasn't so much, all right, teach you the things you need for school. What it seemed to do, and I think we have other reasons for thinking this, was make the kids more resilient, make them more robust, make them more able to deal with a variety of environments or make them more willing to take risks. You know, taking the SATs, if you've come from a family where no one's ever gone to college, that's a kind of risky thing to do. So I think that's a nice example where what childhood is doing is not so much teaching you one thing in particular, but it's giving you this period of play. And in some work that we're doing, I think uh, in robotics, there's quite a lot of really nice work that shows, you know, if you want a robot to just do one thing over and over again, then you can use something like RL to train it to do that thing. But then the trouble is, you know, just, you know, you move the screw, as you know, a half inch over to one side and the robot falls apart. So you want robots that can deal with changes in the environment and be robust and resilient and figure out what to do. And there's some work that suggests that giving the robots a chance to play, really, uh, giving the robots a chance to just experiment, try lots of different things, that's costly because you're not training them to do just the one thing. And they're going to do a lot of things that look as if they're don't make any sense, but that actually makes them more resilient when they're actually having to decide things later on. And I think that's the story about childhood too. That's so interesting. And and when I think about your earlier experiments with the Blicket detector, and, and you mentioned, okay, we had to keep the Blicket detector on our side of the table so the children couldn't, you know, grab it and, and experiment. And those were the earlier experiments. And now you've you've effectively switched to investigating children playing. And so was there a moment when you're running these older experiments where you're just like, actually, we, we should stop keeping the children away from these boxes? Exactly. <laughs> well, I remember, again, having this conversation with uh, 
with Clark, who is my computational collaborator, and saying, you know, I think the kits might be telling us something about what's going on here. And all the way back in 2007, we did the first experiment where we just let the children, uh, we let the children play. And there's a sort of funny story about this. So uh, again, this was with then with my then student, Laura, and she was the graduate student working on this project of figuring out what would happen if the kids played. And she had this great video of all the weird things that the kids would do when you just said to them, okay, just play with it. She had the gear toys and she just said, okay, you know, figure out how this works. And they were, you know, licking the gears and putting their ears to the machine and throwing things around. And Laura always had this nice line about, look, you wouldn't be laughing at this if this was your thesis, if this was your PhD data, right? <laughs> so they were doing, part of the reason why it's hard to study play is exactly because the children will do all of these things. But what Laura discovered was that in the midst of doing all of this, they would also do exactly the things that they needed to figure out how the machine worked. And the kids who had a chance to play were more likely to solve the problem spontaneously than the kids who didn't. And what we're doing right now, literally, you know, as we speak, is we're setting up virtual environments, like a virtual version of the DeepMind lab and a virtual version of our blicket detector, so that we can put various kinds of agents in exactly the same situations with the same kind of data. And then also that we can record exactly what it is that the kids do when, say, they're exploring a maze. And we couldn't have technically the reason I think why people hadn't studied play as much is because it's, you know, it's really hard to, I mean, what makes it play is that it's fun and open-ended, but that makes it really hard to do experiments and to code. But now there's a whole lot of uh, work. We have a, a grant from the a Templeton Foundation to actually just do computational theories of play, figure out computationally what's going on when we play and what benefits could we get from actually, say, allowing our robots or our AI systems in general to, to play? What would it mean for an AI system to play? And actually, you've been involved in some of that work also on the, on the AI side, right? Where reinforcement learning is not driven by final rewards that you care about for solving a task, but by curiosity. So I'm curious, when you put forward an objective like curiosity, which is often done in reinforcement learning, it's still a specific objective. It's this very generic one that allows the agent to learn for a long time and explore new things in a natural way, but it's still a person making that choice and saying, I'm going to reward the agent for something very specific, namely, whenever it encounters surprise of some type, right? And so I'm curious, is that possible to study in children and, and somehow find out their maybe exploration objective in some sense? Yeah, that's exactly what we're uh, what we and others have been doing. Uh, again, my colleague uh, Celeste Kidd at, at Berkeley, for instance, did really beautiful work with babies showing that babies are sensitive to things like information gain. So even if you take, you know, nine-month-old babies and you show them different kinds of sequences of events, different videos of different things happening, they'll choose to look the most at the ones where you can formally show that they're going to get the highest expected information gain. So I think there's quite a lot of, and Laura and uh, Elizabeth Bonowitz, who's now at Harvard, have done experiments that show, for instance, that kids will, older kids will play more with something that's causally confounded than something where the causal structure is obvious. And of course, that makes sense. If something's causally, you don't, you can't figure out cause, the causal structure, it makes sense to try and do things to, to figure it out. The challenging thing at the moment is, can we go, and I think this is equally challenging for the AI systems and for the 
understanding the kids is, can we go beyond information gain? So information gain is certainly one thing that we might set up as an objective, and then we can show that that will do better. But what seems to be going on in play and exploration in kids is like beyond just trying to get more information. So for example, one of the things that kids do is they set up new objectives for themselves. So it's a bit more like I think some of the ideas that come out of meta reinforcement learning. The example I always give is my my uh, grandson Atticus plays what we call Addy chess. So his big brother plays chess chess. But Addy is a little little to understand how chess works, but he obviously gets it. This is where the social part that this is a cool thing. So what he'll do is he'll say, figure out a way of putting all the, put all the pieces in the wastebasket and take them all out of the wastebasket. He'll do that first. And then he'll turn them all upside down and then he'll knock over half of them. Um, And this is all rather annoying to his big brother who wants to play real chess. But the point is, it's not so much the, even that he's got an objective, like I want the greatest information gain. It's like, he's got this objective, which is what's involved in having objectives. So it's this kind of meta objective of a meta goal of what does it mean when I have a particular goal? What can I learn from having one goal versus another goal? And I think that's something that kids very spontaneously do when they explore. They clearly want information gain. They want to find out more about the world, but that's partly relevant to the hypotheses they already have. They won't, you know, that one of the problems, as you know, with say our curiosity-based agents is, you know, what people call the TV problem where you, you know, they can get stuck in front of a a TV that just has random noise on it because random noise means that you're always getting more information in the information theoretic sense, but like, it's not the right information. It's not the information you want. So one thing about the kids is they're choosing to explore. This speaks to your point about, you know, liking the box. They have a particular problem they're trying to solve and they want to explore in a way that will give them and it's this quite mysterious kind of teleological thing. How do you know in advance what to do to get the information that will help you solve the problem that you think is an interesting problem. And somehow kids seem to be really good at, at doing that. But they're also doing this other thing, which is which is exploring the way that their own exploration works by doing things like setting up new goals for themselves and figuring out what you'd have to do to, to solve those goals. I like this notion that kids are setting goals for themselves and then try to achieve them and, 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 and play games with themselves. What do you think is the role of socializing in, in this process? Does that expand the learning too? Yeah, so that's, as I say, I think that the two, you know, uh, as, as you probably know, one of the things that I've learned as a result of interacting with places like DARPA is that acronyms are everything, right? So, you know, if you're going to be an AI, this is the most important thing that I've learned is if you want to be an engineer, the first thing you have to do is learn how to make acronyms. So the acronym for our uh, DARPA project is, is MESS, which stands for Model Building Exploratory Social Learning Systems. And aside from the acronym, I think those are, in fact, the three things that are crucial. One of them is you're not just pulling out statistics, you're building these more abstract models. The second thing is you're actively learning, you're exploring, you're curious, and we still don't understand very much about how to characterize that computationally. And then the third thing is you're learning from you're learning from other people. And you can see with something like one of the kinds of play that you know the three and four-year-olds that I study really love the best is this kind of pretend play. And pretend play is often about other people. It's about doing things like having an imaginary friend who you can interact with, who doesn't even exist, but is another person in your social world. So 
having, and I, I think one of the things that's kind of underappreciated is how much children are playing with other children. So one of the things that we found in that very, very first study uh, looking at play is that children who were playing together actually found out more about how the machine worked than children who were just playing by themselves. And children do play together. Um, and we don't quite know how that works. Another thing that I think is really interesting from the perspective of social learning is that one of the things we know about people, about humans, is that we're very cultural learners. So each generation learns something new, passes that on to the next generation. They modify it and change it, learn something new, pass that on to the next generation, and, and so forth. That seems to be a lot of our, the secret of human success. And and children also seem to be very tuned into this kind of cultural learning. And an idea, perhaps autobiographically or egocentrically, that I have is that, you know, in addition to having this mysterious long childhood, humans have a very long elderhood period. So we have these postmenopausal grandmothers, for example. We're living 20 years, and we always have since we evolved. We live, you know, 20 years past our fertility. That's very mysterious. Why would that be? And one thought is that the elders are in this kind of other niche of passing on the big, important cultural information in the society. So I think when the kids are sitting and talking to grandma and grandpa, often what they're hearing are the big stories, the myths, the songs, the things that happened 150 years ago. Um, and the kids love that. And of course, the grandparents love sitting there and telling the stories. And I think that may be a really important kind of social learning that's different from the just kind of standard social learning about do this or do that. So you're saying there might have been evolutionary pressure that favors uh, longer living humans. Exactly. Yeah, and, and part of what I'm writing a book now that's going to be called uh, Curious Children, Wise Elders. And the idea is just as it's important to think about children, not just as being, you know, kind of grownups who haven't been around, but as having these kind of specialized abilities for things like learning and exploration. I think it's interesting to think about elders rather than thinking about them as being just, you know, grownups who aren't as good anymore, <laughs> thinking about them as having some special characteristics that are suited to this cultural learning niche, to this ability to pass on information that's the really important information, the really crucial things in the culture to another generation. I will say when I was reading some of your writings, one of the things that surprised me the most was that you wrote exactly about this, that back even in prehistoric times, humans who survive up to a certain age so they don't have a childhood uh, death, they, they would often become 70 years old. That, that was a big surprise to me. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it really contrasts with, you know, like chimpanzees, our closest primate relatives, by the time they're about 50, they're their fertility ends and that's about when they die. That's about their lifespan, even if they're, you know, being very well taken care of and have medical care. And if you look in even forager cultures and you look at fossils, humans have been living, we've had this extra 20 years or so, as long as we've been around. And there's some really beautiful recent anthropological work that shows, for instance, if you look at things like hunting parties, complicated things that humans have learned how to do. One of the things that you say is that, you know, actually teaching someone else this is relevant, maybe relevant to the driving example as well, right? It's really hard to do something well and teach someone who's not very good at it at the same time. And what the anthropologist Michael Gervin found was that when you looked in these hunting cultures, the older people, in this case, it's mostly the older men, they're not as effective hunters. They're not as strong. They're, you know, they know a lot, but they're not actually as good at hunting. But what they're doing is teaching the, the teenagers and the kids. So 
the 10 year olds and the, and the 60 year olds will go out hunting together. And then like the 30 year olds who are really, you know, the most effective hunters will go out by themselves because they don't want to be distracted by having a bunch of 10 year olds uh, running around after them. Something that I think we've all learned during the pandemic is how difficult it can be to, to be getting anything done at the same time that, that little children are around. And one of the really cool things is it turns out there's very few animals that have this postmenopausal grandmotherhood. Aside from humans, the other group that we know does is killer whales, is orcas. And it turns out that they're also one of the few animals that has really clear cultural traditions. So among the orcas, these old grandmothers are going around and showing the other whales where the good uh, foraging is, where the good food is, and then passing on these food traditions to the to the next generation of whales. So I also like this speaking as a grandmother who spends a lot of her time, you know, making spaghetti and meatballs and passing on the info to the kids that passing on recipes seems to be a really, really deep, important part of human culture. I don't, I don't know if AIs kind of got to that point when AIs can start passing on their recipes to the next generation of AIs. Maybe that's when we should be really worried. That's when they're going to be doing something that looks really like humans. It's an interesting question, right? In some sense, for AIs, will it be meaningful to die, right? Is that a good thing? Does, does that make the AI better in some way? Because for digital systems, we don't necessarily need to have them as generations. So I'm very curious, curious what you think about that. Is there maybe some intrinsic benefit if even for AI systems, we, you know, we have that generational aspect? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. You know, like one of the big areas of excitement in AI now is having multi-agent systems. And it's interesting that it turns out that even though, you know, in principle, you could put all the digitally, this is the same thing. You don't need to have separate systems, but it turns out that actually having multi-agents with somewhat different objectives interacting with one another often gets you better results than if you just had a single, you know, deep brain, brilliant single computer. And one of the things that I've argued for is that, if you look at humans, we have this kind of developmental trajectory where we have really different roles for children and adults and elders. And it may be that building in some development into the systems is relevant too. So for example, you know, neural nets are supposed to be based on neural nets, on neurons. But one of the things that we know is that when we look at development, we see this very characteristic architecture where you have this early this system that early on in childhood is making lots of new synaptic connections. And then there's this tipping point where you prune a lot of the connections you've already made. So you go from a system that's really plastic and flexible to one that's really efficient. And uh, I think it would be really interesting. And in humans, we also have this other piece, which is, and then that system can learn from the previous generation. So I think it would be very interesting to try and see what happens when you have this kind of generational cultural learning. And there's, there, we've just hired someone at Berkeley in psychology, for example, who's, who's trying to do that, trying to sort of artificially see what happens when you have a generation, one group is learning from the previous, uh, from the previous generation, how does that influence learning compared to what happens if everybody's just starting from scratch. And, and as you can imagine, it, it really helps if you are able to take advantage of what a previous generation has done. But it can also put you in a kind of local minimum where if the previous generation's got something wrong, you don't get out of it. So the same kind of balance between exploration and exploitation, we in the cultural world is this balance between innovation and imitation. And again, I think this is very relevant for, say, robots, if you want a creature that not only can be tuned to the environment that you put them in, 
but now can change their minds when they're in a new environment, can do something new, can have a different goal, which is what we want if we want really intelligent systems. What will it take to be able to, to do that kind of change or revision, that kind of innovation? So what, what would it take to actually have AIs that not only are imitating our values, but are actually innovating or actually doing things that are, that are new that we wouldn't have anticipated? And, and from there, in what you're saying, it seems like teenagers are, are the kind of the, the cultural part of the process to get out of the local minimum and to, to just radically want to do things differently for a little while. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we actually, so as, as I mentioned, we've done these experiments that show that if you have an unlikely or unusual hypothesis, kids are actually better at learning it than adults. So we said, well, how is that going to happen across the lifespan? So we looked at four-year-olds, and then we looked at six-year-olds and 11-year-olds, and then we looked at teenagers, and we looked at adults. What we found, which was really fascinating, was I don't think it's when you go to school, but when you hit school age, six or seven, you become a little less flexible than when you're a preschooler, which kind of fits other things that we know. And you kind of stay that way all through school age. And if you're trying to solve a physical problem, then you become much less flexible at puberty when, you, when you're an adolescent and you sort of stay the same through, ad, through adulthood. But if it's a social problem, if it's a problem about what people will do or why people do the things they do, then you see a different pattern. What you see is, yeah, the school-aged kids are a little less flexible, are less flexible than the preschoolers. But then you see this big jump in adolescence. The adolescents are actually the most flexible. They're the most likely to think of a new idea about how people could work. And then it drops off again in, in adulthood. And I think it's a really interesting idea that the adolescents are kind of at the cutting edge of innovation in the social sphere. And there's some neuroscience that suggests that that might be true, uh, uh, might be true as well. I think this general idea about how do we get kicked out of local minima and how do things about how we work as humans, both individually and collectively, keep us from just getting stuck in local minima? I think that's a really interesting uh, developmental question. Now, Alison, when you think about the future of AI, what we might see maybe in the next five to 10 years or beyond, what are some of the things that you are most excited about? Well, I think one thing is this idea of having active learning. I think that's going to make a big, that's going to be a, a really big direction. I think it's interesting that there's been something of a rediscovery of say these causal base nets that were there 20 years ago. I think people are beginning to realize if we could instantiate those people like, uh, I'm, I'm actually going, going to Montreal on my sabbatical and people like Joshua Bengio have been arguing for this kind of two systems where you have a kind of deep learning system that's pulling out the statistics, but then you have something more like a causal BayesNet that's turning that into a more abstract model. I think those are really interesting. I think more and more we're going to be seeing social learning. Here's the, the last thing, and I'm not sure whether we actually want to do this or not, but I think it might be interesting to think about in terms of the future of AI. One of the big problems in AI is this problem of uh, the alignment problem. So the problem of people like Stuart Russell at Berkeley have talked about this a lot. Brian Christian has this beautiful new book about AI that I really love called The Alignment Problem. And the problem is we have a set of values. We have a set of things that we want to accomplish, things that we want to do. And somehow we want to get an AI to be tuned to our values. And the problem, you know, the famous paperclip apocalypse example is, suppose I tell the AI to make paperclips and that's its objective, and then it turns the entire world into paperclips, right? That would be a terrible outcome. And there's some arguments that we've already kind of got the paperclip apocalypse with social media because we 
think that we should tell our algorithms, show me the things that I'm interested in. And it shows me all these terrible things that are making me outraged and scared because those are the things that I'm, uh, those are the things that I'm interested in. So the question is, how could we, how could we get an AI to have our values? But I think there's actually a deeper question when you think about children. One thing we want is for children to have our values, but we also want children to be able to develop a new set of values. This gets back to the adolescence, right? So one of the things that's happened in you know, AI ethics and practical AI examples is, for instance, you could get a deep learning system to replicate uh, jury decisions. But one of the great things that happens is sometimes juries will say, you know, all those decisions we made before, they were wrong. All those things that we said about how gay people couldn't get married, we all thought that. And you know what? We were wrong. Now we have a new value. Now we have a new objective. Um, and I think it's really a deep question about how you could design a system that could not only accomplish a particular objective, but could somehow say, these are the objectives that are really worth doing, here's something new to do, but it's something that's new that's going to be beneficent, that's going to be ethical rather than being bad and malign. And if we want really, now, again, maybe we don't want our AIs to be able to do that, but if, I think they're going to have to do it, even to just do intelligent things like figure out how to, you know, maybe even figure out how to drive a, a, a new car. And the way that we do that with humans is by having parents. That's one of the big things that we do, having uh, parents and grandparents and teachers who help other people to help younger people, not just to get knowledge or not just to do what they want, but to make up new values that are actually going to be useful values. And I think, you know, kind of this is looking far ahead. AIs are going to need to have moms and maybe even more grandmoms if they're going to be able to actually make the kind of progress that, uh, that humans have, have made. That's really fascinating, but also scary at the same time, right? Because letting the AI run loose and inventing new values, even though I agree with your point that new values need to be invented over time as we understand the world better and realize, you know, decisions from the past are not the right decisions and so forth. We lose a lot of control potentially then as humans, if, if the AI starts, you know, just building generations and generations of value systems as the AI's experience grows. Um, yeah, we, we got to hope that it somehow works well for us or or maybe some people don't say, okay, it's okay, the AI is the next, you know, step in evolution. But if we want to be around ourselves, then we got to hope that it somehow still stays aligned with things we, we want. Right. But, you know, I think that's that's true. And we maybe that we just don't want to go in that direction with AIs at all. But But after all, that's, again, you know, Peter, my big point, I mean, the point of my whole my whole career is having children and taking care of children is something that's that people don't pay very much attention to you know like they write parenting books about it it's the thing that's in the lifestyle section of the paper it's the thing that women do and you know it's kind of not something that people have taken terribly seriously but as soon as you really pay attention to it it turns out that it's just central to a million deep important things about how human beings work and about how any kind of intelligence system works. So, you know, every time you have a child, every time you have a new generation of human beings, you face exactly this problem. How do I decide that my values, the things that are important to me, you know, I don't want my children to just do exactly the same thing that I did. I want them to change in the light of the new environment. But of course that means they're gonna do something different for me. And maybe I'm just gonna react by saying that's just awful, I don't want them to, you know, I don't want them to do this. 
But sometimes I'm going to react by saying, you know, I was wrong about that. That, uh, you know, it turns out that there wasn't any reason why there wasn't any reason why uh, gay couples couldn't be married, for example. So it's, I think that problem, and sometimes we sort of see the next generation going out and we say, they are going to a really bad place, right? Like, we don't want them to, we don't want them to, to go there. Um, and we sort of have to have enough faith that we can, we can make that, we can make the decisions that will lead them to go to places that are going to be better than the places we're in. So, so I think, I think you're right. That would be a big problem for AI, but it's kind of, you know, again, in this very banal uh, activity of raising children, something that we don't pay very much attention to, that's a problem that we humans are trying to solve all the time. And we don't know very much about how it's possible for us to solve it, partly because it's happening with a bunch of moms and kids and preschool teachers that people haven't paid much attention to. Well, on that topic, I am actually very curious. I mean, you've obviously paid a lot of attention to all of this. You And you have three sons, three grandchildren. Four grandchildren now. <laughs> oh, four grandchildren. Oh, your webpage is out of date. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's a so, new, new, new grandchild. So you have three sons, four grandchildren. You studied this in your job. I got to imagine that also in your private life, you, you think about what is the best way to raise my sons, raise my grandchildren. And what are the things that are in your mind when you think about this? These are the things that I, you know, putting myself in your shoes. These are the things I really want to do when I raise my children. What would be your advice? Yeah. Well, The Gardener and the Carpenter, which is my most recent book, is really about that, about, you know, what can developmental psychology say? And I think it's what it says is really different from a lot of what's out there in, say, the parenting literature. So I think what we do as parents is create this nurturant environment in which children can explore. And what that means is that a lot of times our goals are not the same as their goals. Um, if you think in terms of this explore exploit trade off, if we could shape children to come out exactly the way that we would have done, we want, we would have defeated the whole purpose of childhood. I think the whole purpose of childhood is it's like a we're injecting noise into the cultural system. Every generation of children is like this blast of noise that kicks us out of our local minima. And, and that, you know, you can't kind of predict what's going to happen in advance and you wouldn't want to predict what's going to happen in advance. So I think, I think the really challenging thing about being a, a caregiver is that you have to give the other person an environment in which they can actually do exploration themselves. And the good news is, I think that's actually in some ways a lot easier than the kind of parenting prescription where there's all these things that you're supposed to be doing with your children. I think if you love your children, which is the easy part, right, that's not a terribly hard thing to do, especially when they're little and incredibly adorable and cute, and you let them watch you integrate them into your everyday activities. So, you know, we, with my grandchildren, we go gardening and we read books because I like to read books. We go for walks, we cook together, we do all the things that we would, that I would do. Though I think that's, that's a much better and easier and less stressful way of having children around than this very kind of intensive parenting that has become a part of middle-class life. So sort of, you know, chilling out and loving them and paying a little attention to what they're doing. I think that's really the secret. 
I love I love this advice, Allison. I think this is a perfect moment to to end our conversation. It's such beautiful advice. Um, th thank you so much. I learned so much about AI and and children and how they learn. And it's absolutely amazing all the work you've done and how how well you explain it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Peter, so much for having me. And feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.